0: The Lord's Supper is uh, ordinance of communion, one of the two that the Lord himself instituted. Communion and the other one being baptism. And Jesus in his divine sovereignty knew that what we needed were reminders of his grace and that what we need is to be unified together in one body and in one mind. So communion is multifaceted in terms of the benefits of doing it. Why do we do it? But simply put, we practice communion and partake of it because the Lord told us to. And we do so in obedience to his word. I'd like to read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Some selections from it. And... As I read, I invite you to come up forward, uh, receive one of the cups, and then you can return back to your seats. I'm going to read through this twice so that we can soak in the words of God. And then when you turn back to your seats, we'll have a, a time of silence to reflect upon Christ and then I will pray and then we'll partake together. But First Corinthians Chapters 10 and 11, some selected readings from there. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. For I receive from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus on the night He was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner would be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. It's not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ. It is not the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This body, which is, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner would be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment of silence now to reflect upon Christ. Our Father, we come to thy table of thy presence in the spirit of sincere humility. As we examine our hearts, we feel unworthy of the supreme sacrifice made for our salvation. Jesus, give us today as we partake of the loaf, a deeper understanding and a new resolve. May this symbol of the broken body of thy son have an enriched meaning, and may it give us courage toward greater sacrifices on our part that Thy kingdom may come on earth among people everywhere. In His name we pray, Amen. The body of Christ broken for you. Our Father, we read in Thy Word that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. As we take up the cup of suffering today, may we be reminded of Calvary and the supreme sacrifice made by our Master upon the cross. Give us understanding, hearts, and minds. Quicken within us the desire to prove our sincerity as those who wear the name of Christ and who desire to serve Him consistently. We would therefore, together in this high moment of worship, renew our vows of loyalty to Thy kingdom. Forgive us in our weaknesses strengthen us in our noble purposes this we pray in the name of Christ our sinless master amen the blood of christ poured out for you and as the disciples did on when they first did communion first time Walk over here just so I can get key. Join me in singing Amazing Grace, the first line. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound That saved a wretch like me I once was lost but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Amen. Amen. Alrighty, And with that, kiddos, y'all can be dismissed to grow, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus at this time. We're going to do the same in here. The rest of you all turn with me to Luke chapter twenty one. Luke chapter twenty one. You all hungry today? Hope so. Feast upon the goodness of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 5 tells us to taste the goodness of the Word of God. With Luke 21, beginning in verse 5, reading through verse 38. If you are able one more time, I invite you to stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. Luke 21, beginning in verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? and What will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm, and you will win life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies... We will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives, and all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. This is God's word. You may be seated. A brief prayer. Our Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us, all for the glory of Christ, in his name we pray, amen. How many of you today want to live a meaningful, fulfilled life? By show of hands, let me see. I would hope all of you, how, and you might be wondering, what does that mean? How many of you want to live a purposeful life? A life filled with value, a life filled with meaning, and a life that is just good, it's blessed, It's abundant right, that describes, I think I saw everybody's hand in here, that describes every single one of us. Because, and the fact that you were here this morning speaks to that reality. Because nobody ever wakes up on Sunday morning and says, you know what, I just want to live a bad, worthless life. And then you walk in to the door of a church. Nobody does that. The fact that you were here is a simple little testimony that you are seeking to live a meaningful, blessed, fulfilled life. And when I say all of that, you have to understand that is not in any way selfish or in any way self-centered. You know, it's all about what I want, what I want for my life. No, because the blessed, abundant, rich life is the life that God has created you for. It's the life that God has called you to and has invited you to experience. So it is a good thing if you desire that. So since that describes all of us then, okay, here's where I'm going with this. To live a blessed life, what you need to do is situate yourself in God's timeline. I'm that again. To live, to experience the blessed life, you must situate yourself into the timeline of God himself, and situate yourself into the narrative of Scripture. I'm reading one book currently. It's called The Drama of Scripture, and it's talking about from Genesis to Revelation, what is the storyline that binds this book together? And then, of course, for you and I, where do we fit in to that timeline? how do we fit into God's big story? And this isn't rocket science, right? This is kind of basic elementary stuff. But what does God's timeline consist of? Past, present, and future. How do we fit into all of those categories, right? So the past. Where did we come from? How did we get here? What's our history? Present day. How do I live today? What are the morals, what are the commands, what are the principles that I should be living out every single day, especially 2023, Then the future? What happens next? What is going to happen next? What's to come? What is going to happen in the future? And you see, one of the beautiful, compelling things about God's Word is it addresses each of those components fully. It explicitly details where did we come from. The creation, Genesis, it tells us where the entire civilization came from, how it all began with one man and one woman. They had children, multiplied, so forth. Noah and the flood, God wiped out the earth, and then the Tower of Babel, as we are actually going to read about next week, but the, the nations were spread out across the world, and then the entire Old Testament and even the New Testament, it chronicles God's commitment to his people, how he sustained them, how he provided for them, but not just for the Jews, it's also God's grace being expanded to all people across the world, as we see later on in the New Testament. So it talks about where we came from. But then, how do we live? I mean, many of you know the Ten Commandments. I hope you remember them or you, you memorize them. We preach, I preached through them uh, about a year, year and a half ago, so I hope that you know those. Right? How do we live today? How, how do we live in 2023, but then also, what happens next? What happens next? And that is, brings us to our text today. Because Luke chapter 21 talks about eschatology, is what it's known as. Eschatology just simply means the doctrine, the study of the last things, or the study of the end times, the study of the end of the world, of the future. Now, when you think about the end times, what book do you usually turn to, to figure out? I'm glad nobody said left behind, okay? So it is Revelation. Revelation. That is the main book in the Bible, the entire book is devoted to the future. And, but, while that's good, it's arguably said that this chapter that we're looking at today, Luke 21, the parallel passages would be Mark 13, Matthew 24 and 25, it's argued that these are some of the most important chapters when it comes to filling in our understanding of what's going to happen at the end of time. So we're in for a treat today because this chapter has also been dubbed one of the hardest chapters in the Gospels to interpret and understand. So I hope you're all ready for a little ride with me. And it's not we're not gonna land it today. This will be a two-part, we'll finish it up next week, just as a disclaimer. I'm not gonna and even next week I'm not gonna address every single question you have, but I'll I'll try to be thorough. But today my goal, the aim today is kind of zoom out big picture, how do we approach the text, what's the right attitude, what are some basic uh, tools and things that we can cling on to as we navigate this kind of difficult chapter, just to be frank. So, here, here, let's zoom out a little bit. When it comes to looking at the end times, I typically think that there are two big approaches when it comes to thinking about the end times, eschatology. So, on the one hand, you have over here, you have those who are, if you will, this might describe you a little bit and understand I'm using generalizations, okay? Doesn't necessarily describe every single one of you. But over here we have what you'd known as diehard fanatics. Okay? These are people who obsess over the end times. Every other book they read is about or maybe every book they read, frankly, is about what happens at the end every conversation that you have it seems like every other sentence they're bringing up the antichrist or you know this sign the earthquake is a sign of what's fulfilling there and they're just always talking about what's happening regarding the end and typically these people hit broad brush strokes here typically these people think that the end times are going to happen tomorrow Right? Oh, it's, it could be any day. It's going to happen next year. It's, it's right upon us. Every single sign or all the major signs have been fulfilled in the Bible and we are just living right on the edge of Jesus coming back. All right, So, if that describes you a little bit, I, I encourage you, please be humble. Please be humble. Because, just frankly, you do not have it all figured out. Because this topic regarding eschatology has been debated on for 2,000 years. Christians have never been unified regarding the, the precise understanding of these specific details in the Bible. Now, we can agree upon some commonalities, right? The big one, Jesus wins. I'll address that in a moment. But the reality is, you do not know every single detail. And I simply encourage you, please be humble and be open. And not necessarily to what I say, but submit yourself, submit your thoughts to The supremacy of God's word. Let God's word shape and mold your understanding concerning the end times. And just because you heard it on TV, or you read it in a book, or even you heard it from a previous pastor, that does not automatically make it absolutely certain. And again, I'm talking about specifics here. We're going to go over some commonalities, some general things we can cling to in a moment. But please, if that describes you even a little bit, please be humble when we approach this topic. On the other end of the spectrum, you got over here. And frankly, this is kind of where I fall on board. And in another general generalization is typically, I think these people over here are a little older. And, you know, it makes sense because the older you get, the more you think, what's going to happen next, all right? But on this side, those who are younger, I mean, you don't have to necessarily be young. But over here, you have the attitude of being what I call a pan-millennialist. And some of you may have heard me say this before, but if you've been in the church, you know that sometimes there's these conversations about being premillennial, millennial amillennial, postmillennial, pre-tribulation, post-trib, mid-trib. Where do you fall on that spectrum of all that kind of stuff? A pan-millennialist simply says, it's all gonna pan out in the end. Jesus wins, okay? So over here, you have that kind of attitude. Yeah, yeah, you know, in times, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all gonna pan out. It's all gonna be all right. Christians are gonna win at the end of the day. That's enough for me. Is there truth to that? Is that true? Right? Is that attitude true? Yes. But, and again, I'm speaking firsthand. This is kind of my, my own recent, I'm trying to get out of this mindset. But over here, that attitude is usually accompanied by this sense of overwhelming uncertainty. But also there's this, frankly, this sense of complacency. Because when it comes to the end times, it's easy to say, you know what, there's just too many interpretations out there. There's too much bickering and too many uh, divisions on this. And I I just, I can't wrap my mind, my head around Revelation. It's too complicated. There's no unity on it. I know Jesus is going to win. So therefore, why waste my time trying to unpack this Revelation, but even any of the conversations about the end times. Why waste my time? If that describes you in any little way, how you just, it's too big for you, I encourage you, please hear the words of Revelation 1, 3 and 22, 6 to 7. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. These words are trustworthy and true. Then at the very end of the book, chapter 22, blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy written in this scroll, did you hear the recurring theme there? The recurring word in all those verses—the word "blessed." Blessed is the one who hear, who reads it aloud, who hears it, but all, who also takes it to heart. Okay, do you believe that promise today? The promise is if you spend time studying it, unpacking it, reveling in it, you'll be blessed. And I asked you, again, just a moment ago, how many of you want to live that blessed, fulfilled, meaningful life? Everybody. And what I'm saying is, in part, the blessed life comes from wrestling through the end times. Have you ever thought of it like that? For you to live a meaningful life, you do need to wrestle through this doctrine. So, so, wh- wh- whether it describes you today, right? If you are eager about this already, if you're passionate about the end times, Please be humble and open. And if you're more complacent or you're more apprehensive or, or even just scared of studying the end times, I encourage you, please be eager and excited about all that God has for us in um, the, the doctrine of eschatology. So, for the rest of our time, was a big old intro, but for the rest of our time today, this is what I want to do. Number one, what's the context of what we're looking at? What's the context of Luke 21? Number two, What are some interpretation challenges that we face in the text? And then finally, what's a best way forward? How can we kind of navigate through this and prepare for next week when we walk through kind of the signs uh, that are unpacked here? So firstly, what's the context? What's going on in Luke 21? Look at with me, verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. Now it's common thought that Jesus speaks this—not uh, necessarily a sermon, kind of this answer to their questions. Jesus speaks these words on Tuesday of Holy Week, All right? So just moments before the crucifixion. Now Jesus, at this time, he is still ministering in the temple and around the temple. And if you recall, in Luke chapter 19, verse 45, it says Jesus entered the temple courts. This is after Jesus had. Wrote in, written in, which one is it? <laughs> written into uh, Jerusalem on the donkey. And after he had been welcomed and praised and whatnot, he entered the temple courts. He made a beeline to go there to teach and to preach about the kingdom of God. So Jesus enters the temple, chapter 19, verse 45. And what we see here in Luke 21 is Jesus concluding his public ministry. Okay, Jesus concluding his public ministry. Jesus keeps talking. He interacts with his disciples. We'll see he has the Last Supper encounter, the upper room, and all that. This is his last public discourse that he provides in public. So it's kind of significant. Keep that in mind. But in verse 5, what's the context? What's going on? We see some of the disciples admiring the beauty of the temple. Is talking to one another, maybe talking directly to Jesus about how gorgeous and beautiful this temple was. And I mentioned this guy a couple weeks ago, but Josephus, a Jewish historian, he records for us that the temple, he says, "...the exterior of this building lacked nothing that could astound either mind or eye. It was covered on all sides with massive plates of gold. When the sun rose... It radiated so fiery a flash that you had to look away because of the glimmer. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was a purest white. From its summit protruded sharp golden spikes to prevent birds from settling upon it and polluting the roof. He goes on to say that some of the stones that were used at the foundation of the temple some of the stones were around 60 feet in length, so roughly about the size of a boxcar on a train. Okay, these are massive, massive stones, many of them overlaid with gold. And they are just—and this is just the outside. I'm not even detailing what's the beauty of the inner course. And, of course, the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary, all the beautiful robes and, and garments and the, the curtains and the bowls and the, the gold and silver, the diamonds, everything in there. A very, very ornate building. They're adoring it. But it's not just a building, you have to understand. This building, this wasn't the original temple that Solomon built. Newsflash for you Solomon built it in the Old Testament. Then it was destroyed, and different things happened in the Jewish history. It was being rebuilt at this time. But this building conveyed to the people God's presence. God is committed to this people. God is here for and with his people. Then Jesus stuns them in verse 6. As for what you will see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Now, it's not a great analogy or great comparison, but think about the White House or the Capitol building Right In our, maybe our American minds, you might think uh, those things are indestructible. Nobody can ever touch them. Our borders are impenetrable. All right, So this is on a much grander scale because they knew explicitly this is God's place where God resides. So nothing is going to touch this temple. Nothing is going to destroy it. Are you kidding me? You see how big these stones are? Nothing is going to take it down. But then Jesus says, no, the time will come. Not one stone will be left on another every one of them will be thrown down. Now, the disciples, we don't know if they've wrestled with that, you know, if they've retorted, you know, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. You might assume they would have because earlier Jesus talked about how he was going to die and rise from the dead. And then Peter responded, Lord, you don't know what you're talking about. Just, just settle down. All right, you're not going to die. So maybe they had that same attitude here. Not exactly sure. But nonetheless, they asked him a very... Real, revelant question. Look at verse 7. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that they are about to take place? But in Matthew 24, turn with me if you will there so you can see with your own eyes. This passage is also known as, if you weren't aware, it's known as the Olivet Discourse. And Matthew 24 is kind of more thorough. It's a bit more um, detailed regarding the exchange and and what the disciples asked, what Jesus responded with. But Matthew 24, look at verse 1. We'll read to verse 3. So keep in mind, in in Luke 21, the disciples asked, when will these things happen? When is the temple going to be destroyed? What are the signs that this is about to take place? But look at chapter Matthew 24, verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And then verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The question is expanded a little bit there. Did you notice the differences? Tell us, when will this happen? When will the temple be destroyed? But also, it's expanded a little bit. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So, what's going on here? There's there's kind of two components that the disciples are asking about. On the one hand, you have, what's going to happen to the temple? When is that going to happen? But then, over here, you have, But also, what's the end times going to look like? When is that going to take place? And coupled and wrapped up into that, when are you coming back? Now, some commentators think that the the Jews may have associated the destruction of the temple with Jesus' return. So some of them may have thought that all of this was going to happen at the same time. But it's clear in Jesus' response that there are kind of two chronological dimensions going on here. Let me say that again. What Jesus then responds with in Luke 21, it's not explicitly clear-cut, okay? Remember the two components. When is the temple going to be destroyed? What are the signs of that? But also, when are you coming back? What are the signs of the end times? Jesus doesn't explicitly say, all right, you know what, disciples, when it comes to the temple, here's the answer. And then, when it comes to me coming back, here's the answer. You read and you look at the flow of thought, they're kind of interwoven and intertwined. Jesus' response, addressing both topics, both questions. So, his answer is a blend of both. It includes both. So, I think it's wrong. This is some kind of like where we're going. How do we wrestle through this? It's wrong for us to say then, this is all about the first century. It's all about the destruction of the temple that happened in 70 AD and Jerusalem being, you know, pillaged and plummeted. But it's also wrong, equally wrong, maybe more so wrong, for us to say, you know what, this is all about what happens today in 2023. Every single verse is about, its about, it's neither of them. It's about both, kind of at the same time. Now, I love what Charles Spurgeon had to say about this. Charles Spurgeon was a Baptist pastor in London, 1800s, late 1800s. The sermon he preached in 1885 on a Thursday evening, which is kind of interesting. Y'all interested in having a church service on Thursday evening, anybody? But uh, he said, listen to this, Spurgeon said, moreover, I think that from this chapter, referring to Luke 21, from this chapter, if we are to understand it at all, and it is confessedly very difficult to comprehend, we must regard the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple as being a kind of rehearsal of what is yet to be. Did you catch that? Did you catch that line of thinking? In other words, I agree with this. This passage is primarily about the fall of Jerusalem, but having said that, this destruction outlined here and the suffering outlined here is a type of microcosm of what's to come for you and I, okay? Here's a one way to think about it. Think about the classic science fair project. What is that? In school, the volcano. It's infamous and famous, right? Everybody does it. It's prim- so you look at that. You use vinegar, baking soda, food dye, right? You know the, you know how it works. It's a it is a real thing, real reactions, real things going on. It's a real physical object, right? but it is a tiny, tiny, tiny microcosm of Mount Vesuvius. Right? The destruction that that wrecks upon human, like real people. Now, in a similar way, one commentator put it like this. Luke 21, in Jesus' response here, the primary purpose is to, provi- is to provide a view of the ultimate end in the distant future through the lens of the destruction of Jerusalem and the immediate future. Okay? So do you catch all of that? This is, this is frankly just where I'm coming from when I approach this because it's tied to context. You have to look at the context. What brought all of this up? And that's why we spent a little bit of time talking about the temple, right? Jesus is talking to his people right in front of him and they are asking a specific question. When is this going to happen about the temple? So we have to have our minds shaped by the context. Yet at the same time, it's clear, I think particularly verses 25 and 28, this is where things get a bit more apocalyptic, if you will. Because in the the first few verses, verses 8 to verse 24, Jesus talks about human physical realities. Persecution by human beings. Earthquakes, famine, storms, etc. War. Uh, nation rising against nation, Jerusalem being pillaged, right? These are all physical realities. But then in verse 25, that's when there's more heavenly signs, right? The sign, the sun, the moon, the stars, there are going to be signs in it. Uh, And then we see the heavens are going to fall and heavenly bodies will be shaken, verse 26. So things begin to get a little more, I don't know, confusing perhaps? And it's clear, right? Jesus talks about verse 27, At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to happen, take place, stand up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So Jesus is talking about his return, which has not happened yet. Though many, as verse 8 talked about, many have come claiming to be Jesus, but don't follow them. So, with all of that, what's our way forward? How do we have the right attitude, especially for next week? Because next week we're going to go through kind of each of these signs and what they mean, how they were played out, what we can expect today. What's the way forward? If you are eager or passionate about the end times, please be humble, please be open. If you are complacent or you're scared or apprehensive of the end times, please be eager, please be excited. Because there is blessing for those who read aloud, who hear what this is saying, and who take it to heart. Revelation opens with that. Revelation closes with that. There is blessing for those who wrestle with the end times. So, be humble and be eager. But also, this is kind of in prep for next week. I've heard, in addition to, right, I've said Jesus wins, right? In addition to that, you can easily say that there are two unshakable, nobody would question these, two realities of the end times. Broad brush strokes, but here they are for you. Number one, great suffering is going to happen. But number two, great triumph and deliverance is going to happen. That was true in the first century with what they experienced. The Jews and the, the first Christians, it's going to be true for us. There is great suffering, but there is also great hope. The last thing I'll say before we close with prayer, the end times. Jesus did not speak about this topic so that you and I would be scared, so that you and I would be frightened, or so that you and I would fight and bicker with one another over who's right regarding the specific interpretations. Jesus spoke these words to us so that we might be able to stand firm so that we might be prepared for what's going to happen, and so that we might be able to stand firm, so we can stand through the storm. When you know the storm is coming, you can hatch it down the house and put up the boards. And right, You get, you get the picture. When you know what is to come, you can prepare for it, but also when it hits, you can be sustained through it. You can live through it, right? So that's part one for you. If you want to learn more about specifics, we're going to unpack that more next week. I hope you'll come back. But uh, just know there is blessing for those who wrestle through this topic. Okay? Please don't forget that. Let's pray and then we'll close with the doxology. Father, there is definitely a lot of confusion and even fear, some arrogance perhaps when it comes to the topic of eschatology. But Lord, we know that you've spoken your truth to us for a reason. We know you've given us an entire book devoted to the end times for our good. And Holy Spirit, we simply ask for wisdom. Please give us wisdom as we try to unpack your word Give us charity for when we may disagree with one another. And Jesus, please, please unite us all around the central truth that you indeed do win. You will deliver us. You will heal us. You will sustain us through the storm. But Jesus, please empower us as well to do our part to wrestle through this, to wrestle through the truth, to cling to the truth so that we might be able to stand firm And we know that if we stand by your grace, we stand by your power, we know that we will win life at the end of time. Please help us to do that. Help us to keep our eyes on the prize, which is to be in your presence. Until that day comes, help us to encourage one another on the journey. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.